4: flushcarecom slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in
5: weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Tuesday morning, the
6: 21st of March. Good morning, with much debate and discussion from now till eleven a.m. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Doyle is to debate a Sinn Fein motion this evening calling on the government to extend the ban on evicting people from rental properties. The government is already decided, however, and it says the ban will end as planned on the 31st of this month. It says extending the ban will lead to more landlords leaving the market, compounding the problem. Them, resulting in even more people becoming homeless than would be the case if the ban was to be extended up to the end of January next year as proposed. It also says there are constitutional hurdles to extending the ban and the advice from the Attorney General is to lift the ban now. Government says that the ban has actually created a new category of homeless with people becoming homeless after living abroad because they can't get back their houses or their apartments by moving tenants out which is a Breach of their property rights. Anyway, the government says the ban hasn't worked up to now because more people have become homeless month on month since it was introduced. Let's speak to Richard Boyd Barrett, People Before Profit TD for Dunleary, who's on the line. And good morning to you, Richard. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. The government is to table its own counter motion, and it's that motion you'll vote on tomorrow, it seems. The government says it's confident it's going to win the vote. It if it does win the vote and the ban ends at the end of this month what do you expect to happen then
3: well i think we're facing into an absolutely disastrous uh, situation if that happens i mean we're already in a dire situation with uh, you know record numbers of people who are homeless and certainly in my area families individuals who are made homeless There is simply no emergency accommodation whatsoever in our county, and this is true of many counties. So there is nowhere to go. Uh, If people are lucky, they may be sent to another county miles and miles away from where their kids go to school, from where they work, uh, making their lives completely miserable and impossible in, in many cases. And those numbers, are there's going to be an absolute avalanche of new homelessness cases, I would say, uh, uh, you know, in the first few months, we're probably talking about three to four thousand additional notice to quits, which will uh, expire, uh, and that situation set to worsen over. Uh, The coming months, and just Um,
6: explain that three to four thousand notices to Uh, quit—that will apply to more than three or four thousand people. Uh, It it could be double that or treble that.
3: uh, Well, certainly in the vast majority of cases that I'm dealing with, you're talking about families. It may be single parents, although in many cases it's you know bigger families. Uh, There may be multiple children uh, involved. Um, And these families and and, uh, individuals are living in absolute terror about where they're going to go because they're acutely aware that there is no uh, emergency accommodation or the emergency accommodation is horrendous and miles away from where they live. And, of course, there's no real long-term solutions for them. I mean, I'm dealing with one young woman and her child, for example, who has been in emergency accommodation for four years. Uh, so her child, who's now uh, about 12 or 13, has been living in accommodation, in emergency accommodation, since he was about eight. And this is a woman who's working, ironically enough, she's working with vulnerable children for Tuzla, mm. and yet her own child is living, is living in these horrendous circumstances, and she has no way out because mm. she's... She's, because her, she is working, her income is over the social housing threshold. And this is increased, This is becoming more and more the case that you mm. find that working people whose income is slightly above the threshold, so they're not entitled to HAP, they're not entitled to social housing, but of course their income is way too low to be able to afford the market rents or market house mm. prices that are out there.
6: Completely so bizarre that, though, absolutely hard to understand, yeah, and it it must be all the more hard for that person to understand, Uh, but that's one person and there's thousands of people, Uh, and I I don't know, I know it's a stupid question, but I have to ask it, if there's nowhere for people to go, where are they going to go?
3: Well, I mean, one family, for example, this is a a couple, uh, husband has been working for a semi state company all his life, uh, you know, paid their taxes, paid their rent, they're too teenage, Uh, Children And they, again, because they're slightly over the threshold, are entitled to absolutely nothing. They're not even entitled to have their house purchased by the council because they're not on a social housing list, but they're being evicted from the home where they lived all their lives. And they are talking very seriously. They believe uh, that when their final date for eviction expires, that they will be living in a car. Uh, that they would be living in their family car because they, they see absolutely no prospect out there. And you see, this isn't just about the eviction itself, which is terrible enough. But the government keeps saying, well, we're putting in place other measures to provide for these families. But that's just not true. Mm. Uh, for huge numbers of families, there there is no alternative solutions being offered. I mean, we have campaigned for this uh, option where the local authorities would purchase the houses to prevent people being uh, evicted. And the government say uh, that they are starting to do this now. But in reality, my experience is that uh, at, 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 at the real level of what's actually happening in, in local authorities, every excuse under the sun <clears throat> is being used by the local authorities or by the government to say, well, sorry, it's not appropriate to purchase a house in these particular circumstances. So there's always an excuse, there's always a reason. But it
6: it doesn't take away from tenants' rights, and they can only be uh, evicted if there's a a reason for uh, evicting them. And uh, most likely that would mean for people who have done nothing wrong that uh, the landlord wants to move back into the house themselves, or a family member wants to move into the house, or they're going to sell the house. And the government says that they're going to give the tenants' first refusal.
3: Yeah, well first of all just to say, I mean, the, the I have come across very, very few cases where it's about landlords trying to move back into their own houses or family members. That 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 is very, very infrequent. I'm not saying it never happens, but the government are kind of using that as a as a stick to justify lifting the eviction ban. The vast, vast majority of evictions that are taking place by a very long margin are where landlords have made a decision to sell. And uh, so the the, the tenant has done nothing wrong, they've always paid uh, the rent, but the landlord has made the decision to sell. Now, uh, I, I, I think it is wrong to evict people when they've done absolutely nothing wrong and the government should have an absolute clear policy to prevent those people being made homeless. Uh, And I think in the short term, that means maintaining the eviction ban until there's other alternatives in place, which clearly there are not at the moment. But also, I mean, if you take most of the rest of Europe, uh, if a landlord wants to sell a rental property, they have to sell the property with the tenants living in the property. That is the rule in most other European countries. So Ireland is a complete outlier in having this situation where if landlords are selling, the tenants face the threat of being evicted, and it's just not fair. Okay, we have hundreds of thousands of yeah. renters in this country. We cannot have a situation where hundreds of thousands of families and individuals and children are f- have constantly hanging over them the threat they could be made homeless. But, but, but and would you support done absolutely nothing wrong?
6: Would you support the government's counter motion if it uh, proposed exactly that?
3: Uh, well, it would certainly be an improvement if they did that, mm. but that's not going to happen.
6: Because we that haven't happens. seen the counter-motion yet, uh, and as things stand, uh, the government is saying that the tenant would have first refusal or a housing body would be able to buy the house on their behalf and rent it to them.
3: But they, they if we can just say something about the first refusal, you see, I mean, the, the, it, given the absolute sky-high uh, price of houses at the moment... Mm. Certainly in most of the areas where the crisis is, is is at its worst, house prices are now completely unaffordable. I mean, in Dublin, mm. you're talking about house prices on average being in the region of 400,000. You're talking about, in my area, very considerably higher than that. So they are completely unaffordable for the vast majority. Mm. I
6: suppose of people course. wouldn't be ranting if they could afford to buy in the first place.
3: Well, well exactly. Yeah. Now, I mean, if the government's affordable housing schemes were better than they... they they currently are there might be assistance for families but again I've gone through this experience with many families who are being evicted or facing eviction and you go in and you meet the council and you say well what about your affordable housing schemes what about your local authority home loans what about the shared equity scheme but none of them work because if you are on a sort of moderate income that income is way too low uh, as against the house prices that are in the area. So for for the vast, vast majority of people who are threatened with homelessness, that is not going to be an option. Now, of course, the the only long-term option here is for the state itself to deliver on a massive scale uh, social and affordable housing, something they keep saying they're going to do, but in reality they're not doing. But in the meantime, the idea we are going to cast thousands more families, particularly families with children, into homelessness is to me just cruel and Mm. inhumane.
6: Well the government accepts that uh, there's going to be a problem, that uh, more people are (laughs) going to be uh, evicted. Uh, I I think the Taoiseach was saying that only a fraction of uh, them will need emergency accommodation and others will find uh, alternatives and uh, whether that's a valid argument or or not time will tell. Uh, But uh, the real argument that the government is making is that if you delay this, you're only going to worsen the problem. You're going to compound the problem.
3: Uh, Yeah, uh, these are kind of bizarre arguments uh, as I see it because the government keeps saying that they have medium to long-term solutions which will resolve the housing crisis, the housing for all plan. Now, if they simultaneously say, well, if we delay evictions for a year or two and then it's going to be worse. What they're really saying is that they have no faith in their own plan to deliver those uh, medium to long-term solutions. Uh, And maybe that is the terrible truth, that actually, it's not just that we have a short-term emergency, which is now going to get very considerably worse, but in fact, even the medium to long-term plans of the government are not going to solve the problem. Uh, And that is a really grim prospect, but sadly, it's probably true. And Uh, I think that is really, you know, when you get down to the core of this, it is because the government has uh, had a policy which is based on private developers, on uh, wealth asset management companies, investment funds, solving the housing crisis for them. And it is not working because those kind of interests who make money from uh, built Mm. property, They don't really have an interest in solving the housing crisis, in bringing rents down, in delivering affordable uh, homes for people. Their main interest is to make money.
6: I think a lot of people find it very hard to understand uh, because this motion would give the government 10 months to find uh, solutions. Uh, But they're saying that in 10 months from now, the problem would actually be worse. Uh, But what about the advice from the Attorney General uh, that uh, you'd be breaching constitutional property rights?
3: Well, look, they, we've heard that before. Before they int- introduced the RPZs, before they introduced the COVID eviction ban, and then they brought them in, and there was no legal problem whatsoever. And the Constitution is very, uh, you know, is quite robust in this regard. You know, when you look at it, what it says is, is where it, the interests of the common good are, uh, you know, vital. Mm that property rights can be overridden, and they are all the time, through compulsory purchase orders, for example, to build roads. So the idea that in order to prevent families and thousands of families being made homeless, that it isn't constitutionally justified uh, to invoke the common good and the need for the government to take exceptional measures to protect the common good, uh, it seems to me that that is very robust legally and constitutionally. Uh, but, of course, let's not forget as well that the government committed to a referendum uh, on the right to housing to uh, to bring in constitutional change around the issue of housing, and they haven't done that either. So, you know, a huge part mm. of the problem here is the government just do not w- seem to be willing to take the radical and emergency measures that are necessary to deal with, with what is an absolute capacity catastrophic situation that is getting worse by the day.
6: Okay, Uh, Uh, can I conclude by asking you what you think is going to happen over, in the first instance, the next couple of days, and then over the next couple of weeks, uh, because uh, it seems as though the government may end up relying on the support of some independents to win this vote, but win or lose... Uh, we heard the Taoiseach say over the weekend it doesn't matter because it's not binding uh, and the government will go ahead uh, and do what it, it deems to be fit what it, uh, views uh, to be appropriate
3: Yeah, well, uh, again I mean I suppose that just shows the lack of the lack of uh, respect that the government has for dual motions and for the democracy of the parliament because they regularly ignore motions that's absolutely true uh it i mean they probably will have the numbers to to get their way on the motion that's before them tonight uh although it is worth saying that a few weeks ago people before profit actually put forward an eviction ban bill which would have also extended the eviction ban for the du- full duration of the housing emergency and that actually passed in the dole and they also ignored that they forgot to call a vote you may remember uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we had that uh, bill, and that has actually passed the second stage. So that that bill is there and live, but the government have also ignored that. So the government just ignore uh, the DAW when it suits them, and that's obviously what they're determined to do this time. And it's why we're saying to people, look, it's time to get out on the streets about this issue. Uh, the Cost of Living Coalition has organised a national demonstration at the door on April the 1st. Uh, that's not an April fool, I want to yeah. stress, but mm. that is uh, that is the day that the eviction ban uh, is supposed to be lifted. So uh, we are hoping we will see thousands of people outside the all at one o'clock on Saturday, April the 1st, to protest against this government's decision because I think really, given their failure to address this absolutely dire housing emergency, their determination to allow it to get worse, we need to get people on the streets uh, to, to force their hand. But you you
6: think it. it will be necessary on the 1st of April that the argument won't be won before then?
3: Uh, I mean, at this point, it looks as if the, the government are determined to try and get their way. I mean, of course, we don't know what some of these independents are going to do. Uh, we've seen, obviously, some one defection from the Greens. Uh, you know, so, you know, I would like to think the government could be defeated. But looking at the arithmetic at the moment, the government probably will get their way. And even if they did lost the motion, uh, the government are, are more than willing and have shown themselves more than willing to ignore uh, dull motions. Um, so to my mind, the only response to that, to the sort of lack of respect that the government seem to have for the fate of thousands of people who are facing homelessness and many, many tens of thousands who were affected in one way or another by the housing crisis, is to get out on the streets and demand change uh, and force their hand like we did with things like the water charges.
6: Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, though, for joining us as always on the programme today. That's uh, Richard Boyd Barrett, People Before Profit TD for Dunleary. Michael
2: Michael Reed on LMFM.
6: St. Patrick's Mental Health Services has launched its annual Attitudes to Mental Health and Stigma survey. In line with uh, the results of uh, this survey, it's launched a, a number of resources a video, a blog, and a booklet, all relating to your rights in the workplace as part of its hashtag No Stigma campaign. Let's speak to Paul Gilligan, who's CEO of St. Patrick's Mental Health Services and a clinical psychologist. Good morning, Paul. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us a little bit about your survey. You surveyed 500 adults uh, and I suppose the headline figure that has taken a lot of people back is that 22% of people have experienced discrimination at work due to mental health difficulty
7: yeah so the annual survey is obviously one we do every year and we look at a variety of different aspects to do with stigma and also um, people's awareness of services etc we felt it was important that we highlighted one particular issue which is this issue of stigma in the workplace now that statistic is stark at one level but i think we should see it in the context of uh, a movement forward i think An awful lot of um, companies have done a lot of work in terms of trying to create a positive wellness in the company. I think they've also done a lot to try and support people with mental health issues. I, I think what this is reflecting is people's attitudes, really when they experience a mental health difficulty, how they see maybe subtle discrimination, Maybe they feel unconfident about going and talking to an employer, and so we're really we're, we're saying let's look at this and try and provide some key resources both for uh, people for people themselves who experience mental health difficulties, how they should manage it in the workplace, and then for employers who want to do what's best for people with mental health difficulties because that's what's best for the company in general.
6: Uh, and uh, is there any understanding of what people mean when they say they've been discriminated against?
7: Well, you've you've got a variety. We, we don't we don't analyse that in the research, but I mean, if you talk to people anecdotally, they'll tell you things like you know, there's subtleties around discrimination, and then there's straightforward discrimination. So things like when when promotion comes up, uh, people t- taking work off people because they feel they're un- undependable, even though there wouldn't be any abs- absolute example, yeah, reason to do that. Uh, and then and then you know w- w- effectively what we know about mental health and mental health difficulties is that awareness has raised significantly but our understanding and knowledge is lagging a bit behind. And what I mean by that is accurate understanding and knowledge. So if someone has a mental health difficulty, it doesn't mean that they're going to be less effective in work. Often they're more effective. Yes, they will need support at times. They will need understanding at times. But So that discrimination can be, can be quite subtle. Mm. So what we're trying to do is focus on the positive because this whole campaign of No Stigma is about helping people understand what happens when people don't experience stigma, how they're given the space to recover, how they can do very well. And remember, work is very important to people's mental health. And so if if you've got a good workplace, a wellness workplace, then you will be able to work more constructively, but it will in- increase your mental health, it will increase your wellness, and will also make the company more effective.
6: Maybe we should back up a, a little bit, Paul, actually. Uh, what do you mean when you talk about mental health difficulties? Are you talking about depression or eating disorders, or, or, or what exactly? Uh, well,
7: uh, the full range, and, and, I, and I think that's also interesting because that question itself, and many people you know our, our more understanding of say somebody who describes having a being depressed or ang- anxious they're not so maybe understanding of someone with a psychosis so so uh, a, a disorder that brings them away from reality for a period of time um, so, I, I think we're, we're talking about the whole range. I mean, St. Patrick's Mental Health Services works with people that present with experience at the whole range of mental health difficulties. So, we're, we're, we're really encapsulating everything in that.
6: Right. Uh, and uh, as I say, uh, you've launched a new video, a blog, a booklet uh, about rights in, in the workplace. Uh, and uh, people with mental health difficulties have rights. Uh, one of the things you're highlighting is the right to take time off because of the way you're feeling.
7: Yeah, absolutely i mean i mean a key to 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 tackling uh, the creating a good work space for people is acknowledging their rights their rights as workers obviously, but also the the rights they have vis vis experiencing mental health difficulty. so a resources focus on rights but also are, are presenting constructive ways that both um, employees, so to speak, and employers can address this issue. I, I also just want to mention we have a webinar on Thursday which has been run in conjunction with the National National Learning Network, Employability South Dublin, and Employers for Change Open Doors Initiative. And that's, that's really, I think, we'd encourage people to try and attend that webinar because, again, it's about looking at positive ways that you can tackle this issue.
6: Okay, Uh, and uh, there's a a stigma attached to mental health uh, and uh, that's evident in the people you've been speaking to who have mental health problems, who are reluctant to speak to others, their employers and others, uh, about the problems that they're having.
7: Yeah, so so 55% of people wouldn't be aware, say, that people with mental health difficulties have the right to reasonable accommodation in the workplace, okay? there have been there has been a decrease in the number of people who would be okay explaining to their boss that they needed time off due to a mental health difficulty. But if you balance that then with some of the other findings, so there's been a 12% increase in the number of people who would tell a colleague, for example. Um, 66% of people believe that a person experiencing panic attacks could work as the head of a large company. So we're on the right road here. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, again, to focus on the positive, I think a lot of employers are doing all they can to, you know, support people, to create a wellness environment. I think a lot of employees are beginning to realize that actually if I go to my employer, things won't be as bad as I might expect. So there's there's work to be done on, 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 on both sides of this. And it's all beneficial to every aspect of a company, uh, their productivity, but creating a good working environment, and keeping staff. Uh, it's, it's a win-win for everybody.
6: Mm. Hmm. If it was an ideal world, uh, but if you don't feel confident about explaining it to your boss, to your employer, uh, then maybe you're better off not. Uh, And uh, of course, there could be uh, that negative reaction, uh, which may uh, only relate uh, to a minority of uh, employers, but it only takes one.
5: Yeah, so
7: I think I mean people have to judge their own circumstances, and you're absolutely correct. If you feel you're going to get a negative response, then you need to think twice. But if we come back to one of these this key finding, talking to a colleague, often we say to people, find someone in the in the company that you can trust, talk to them, and and and, and ask them to support you through this, and then work with your managers or whatever the the, the appropriate people are. I mean, most people remember our awareness is raising. Most people in companies um, want to support people who are experiencing mental health difficulties, not least because they understand. Most people now understand what it's like to experience a mental health difficulty, either themselves or family, etc. So it's 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 reading the situation for yourself, but also remembering you have rights but also looking to try and find support within a company so that you you can take the next step
6: okay Uh, what about applying for jobs Uh, i've often heard complaints uh, about application forms asking people if they had ever suffered from a mental health difficulty Uh, there's uh, an implied discrimination in looking at candidates uh, if that is asked uh, if that information is asked of you
7: Yeah, I don't think it's reasonable to ask that that information anymore, and I think I think that's an issue. Uh, How people handle that is a different conversation. You know, obviously, if you're applying for a job and that that question's asked, you've got to decide do you answer it or not. You've got to decide if you feel that the employer is going to understand that. Uh, Our own view would be that it's important that you are when you're confident to talk to your employer and outline to them this issue you need to expect that they will not discriminate against you you need to remember you have rights you need to open that conversation the timing of that will obviously depend on the company itself what's happening i mean a person cannot be discriminated against in an interview for declaring that they have a mental health issue whether that happens subtly or not is depending on the employer
6: Mm. to be truthful in other words Uh, that's your advice to people
7: yeah i think well i think to be truthful but also to remember i mean I mean first and foremost it's, it's 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 an infringement of someone's rights to be asking them that question, particularly if it's asked at an interview and it wouldn't be acceptable On the other hand, a person needs to judge an interview process as best they can, but we would always say as soon as possible, if you feel you need to 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 talk to your employer so that you will get the support that you require to do the job you're doing of course it's always it's a, it 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 that's a, that's a judgement call around the 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 person's feel for the for the the, the workplace the feel for, for 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 what's happening but be absolutely clear people have a right to talk about this to tell people and have a right to be given support within the workplace and have a right not to be discriminated against the key is and and that's where i think getting support from a colleague also, always makes a huge amount of 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 difference because it it helps people judge what how they how they handle this delicate issue.
6: Okay, just remind us uh, if you will before you leave us uh, this morning Paul about uh, this webinar. This is being held on Thursday, isn't it?
7: On Thursday, yeah. And the it's no is the uh, hashtag #nostigma.ie and that's the website as well and people can get information about the webinar. I think it's going to be a, a, a very good webinar, really just to raise issues and of course we'd also encourage people to access the information on our website.
6: Okay, thank you Paul we we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. As I say Paul Gilligan, CEO of St. Patrick's Mental Health Services uh, who is a clinical psychologist. Michael,
2: Michael Reed on on LMFM.
6: It's next to impossible to see a dentist if you're a medical card patient and in line with World order Oral Health Day yesterday. You'd have heard dentists call on government to establish a, a new scheme to allow that to happen. Let's speak to Fintan Huron, who's uh, the chief executive of uh, the Irish Dental Association. And a uh, very good morning to you, Fintan. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it is next to impossible, uh, and not surprisingly so, given that just 620 dentists are now participating in the scheme that allows medical card patients to be treated.
8: Good morning, Michael, and thanks. Yes, it, it is a, a chronic problem at this stage. Now, and mead are amongst the, the worst affected areas in the country. Uh, there are fewer and fewer dentists still in that scheme. And what that means is that patients, one and a half million, are entitled to care under the medical card scheme or having to wait longer or travel further to see a dentist.
6: Okay, and this is a, a dispute that goes back 16 years in time, does it?
8: Yeah, 16 years ago, it's, it's quite unbelievable. The Department of Health uh, walked out of discussions uh, on a new scheme and has shown no interest in returning ever since. You know, the current minister and many before him have said, yes, we need to do something about this, but nothing gets done. And uh, yesterday, the minister put out a, se- a statement celebrating World Oral Health Day and... Uh, affirmed his, his commitment to uh, good oral health, which you would welcome at face value, but we really need to move beyond issuing press statements. We actually need to sit down and discuss an entirely new scheme to replace the medical card scheme.
6: Or what dentists are paid for taking medical card patients.
8: Well, you know, you know, there was uh, significant increases in the fees paid to dentists in the last year and it did nothing to keep dentists in the scheme. So, their concerns are really about the appropriateness of the scheme. It's a scheme that's in place since the early 1990s. It has all sorts of restrictions on the care that dentists can provide to patients, on the materials they can use. They need to get permission to provide certain treatments. I mean, it's, it's completely out of date um, and... Dentists are leaving the scheme primarily because of frustration that they're uh, unable to provide the care that they want to patients to offer them the same care as they would offer to somebody who goes in to see them privately.
6: Right. Uh, Do they need medical care patients? I suppose that's uh, the other question, uh, because you're all busy anyway, are you not?
8: Well, dentists want to provide care to everyone in the community. I mean, you know, it can't be the preserve of only those who can afford to see the dentist. I mean, dentists live in the community, they want to serve their community. They are healthcare professionals uh, and we fully support them. We have regularly surveyed our members and they all say, yes, there needs to be a system to allow everyone to access their dentist. Clearly, the the system up to now has been through one of the two state schemes, the PRSI scheme or the medical card scheme. The medical card scheme has been completely unfit for purpose for many years. um, And, you know, dentists want to have a system in place that allows everyone to access the dentist.
6: Do you think the PRSI scheme is fit for purpose?
8: Well, the PRSI scheme is an extremely limited scheme. Mm-hmm. I don't think it, it purports to offer much more than simply giving you an entitlement to a free examination and scale and polish. So, you know, it is for working people. The medical care scheme is for people who have lesser means and probably need greater uh, assistance from the state. So... You know, if, if we want to ensure that those who most need the scheme or need access to dental care are in place, we need, uh, we need to have a proper medical card scheme. Of course, the PRSI scheme is welcomed by working people, but the medical card scheme is, is designed to assist those who have most difficulty and most need
6: Okay. Uh, do we have a, an attitude problem towards oral health in the, this country? Because even those uh, who uh, can see their dentists under the PRSI scheme aren't seeing their dentists, apparently.
8: Yeah, I mean, uh, eight out of ten uh, adults are entitled to a free dental examination every year, and not, I mean, I'd say it's less than half avail of that. So, you know, you would wonder why people don't. Um, I think attitudes are changing for the better, but certainly we need to constantly remind people that the vast majority of adults are entitled to a free examination with their dentist, and we would encourage them to contact their local dentist and see if they can make an appointment to avail of their free examination.
6: Okay, as you say, it's a limited scheme, and perhaps uh, therein lies uh, the problem that people go to see the dentist uh, and then can't afford the treatment.
8: Well... That may be true, but I think if if patients are seeing their dentist regularly and they're being examined, then hopefully that will prevent their oral health uh, deteriorating and make make uh, make sure that they uh, they have better oral health and that they avoid more expensive treatments. Uh, so I think. If there's a free examination available, then we would encourage everyone to avail of
6: it. Okay, well, we've heard some terrible stories from medical card patients uh, who were in emergency situations and had to travel to see a, a dentist and had to pay for it uh, at that uh, because there was no option. Uh, this is despite an entitlement to free dental care as a medical card patient. How, how do you go about fixing that?
8: Well, I think we need to have a system uh, in place that works for both patients and for dentists. So the Minister for Health has been in Canada over the last week and in the last while, the Canadian government has brought in a massive new dental credit scheme, they call it, which essentially uh, allows the government to direct funds to people who can't otherwise see uh, a a dentist and gives them, I suppose, a a hand up and meets some of the costs of their treatment It's a very simple scheme. It's it's very similar to schemes that we have investigated and and which actually we would uh, say is appropriate to what's required here because it's not uh, complicated, it's not expensive to administer. It's very simple and I think when people are given, you know, easy access to avail of of that type of system, they... uh, the, the benefits are are well established. There are many countries around the world which have that type of system, rather than an overly bureaucratic system which we have in place, which is, you know, more more preoccupied with restricting care being provided to patients.
6: Okay, and how much would all of that cost?
8: Oh, well, there's no doubt it will cost a lot of money. I mean, to make a difference, it would cost a lot of money. But you know, for every euro that is spent uh, on prevention in in oral health, you know, you you are saving seven or eight euro in dealing with the consequences of neglecting your oral health. So there, it, it's a no-brainer to use that expression. If you get in early, if you prevent problems, you will save not only uh, a large uh, amount of financial cost la- later down the line, but you'll actually improve your oral health. So, you know, it's it's the essence of dentistry. is all about prevention. Mm.
6: Okay. Uh, are people having their teeth extracted uh, unnecessarily?
8: No, I don't think does anyone have their teeth extracted unnecessarily. I mean, because of, I mean, because the of last resort.
6: I mean, because of neglect. Because well, yes, I mean, because obviously. they're not getting fillings or uh, whatever the case may be, and they end up in a situation where the tooth has to come out.
8: Yes, I mean, obviously there are a number of restorative or preventative treatments such as fillings. Um, but you know, going along early to to see your dentist regularly hopefully will pinpoint problems, whether it's gum disease, whether it's. A uh, necessity for filling so extractions are very much the last resort and we'd have far fewer extractions if we'd have if, if a far better provincial system.
6: Okay uh, you've been looking for a meeting with uh, the minister for some time uh, and uh, you're still waiting to meet him are you?
8: We are I mean this time last year he was saying in the doll that talks would start uh, in the second quarter of 2022 I mean there's been no negotiations have happened yet we're 12 months on he has contacted us recently to say a meeting will be set up. We're waiting for a date for that meeting. So yeah, it is very frustrating having to wait. Uh, and yet equally, you know, here it suggested that there's there's some sort of engagement going on. I mean, if engagement is, it takes the form of emails and phone calls, then, then let's spell out what actually engagement means. We'd rather actually sit down or, around the table and discuss what's needed rather than having arguments about the semantics of what engagement means.
6: All right. uh, Roughly how many dentists are there in the country?
8: There's about two and a half thousand in the Republic. Right.
6: Uh, And just 620 are seeing medical car patients. So I suppose that tells its own tale.
8: Indeed it does.
6: Okay, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Fintan Hurrihan, Chief Executive of the Irish Dental uh, Association. Now, if you'd like to make a comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. That's 0419832000. You can send us a text message. If you text it or WhatsApp it, the number to do it on is 0861800658. 0861800658. Email michael at ie. Thanks to ben who's been texting us uh, this morning, she says, Michael, take a look at all of uh, the old county council houses that are up for sale now for hundreds of thousands of euro. And they were bought in the 70s for less than £10,000. They should only be allowed to sell them for a lot less. Uh, and more people would be able to afford to buy them. Thanks, Betty, for that. Uh, It's an interesting comment. I think maybe £10,000 in the 70s was worth a lot more than uh, £10,000 or euros is worth today. James in touch as well about uh, the EU agreeing to buy weapons for Ukraine. What's Ireland's position on this? Uh, Do we vote yes or no or vote for peace, says James? Well, I think uh, the uh, Irish government uh, will always a- agree with uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, agreed position of uh, the un- uh, uh, of the european union james uh, but uh, will not be sending weapons itself to ukraine or anywhere else involving itself in any uh, situation of conflict uh, as I say, if you'd like to make a comment, uh, you can call 041983 2000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, michael Reed on
2: LMFM. FM.
6: More young people aged between 18 and 24 die on Irish roads, 50% more in fact than the European average and many of these young lives are being lost unnecessarily during the process of learning how to drive. This is being highlighted by the unite trade union as part of learner driver and sponsor safety week this week dominic brady advanced driving instructor and chairperson of the unite adi union branches on the line a very good morning to you dominic and thank you indeed for joining us on the program today good morning michael why is it uh, do you think uh, that more learner drivers die on irish roads than is the case in other european countries
1: Yeah, well, what we are trying to do at the moment, Michael, is have a conversation with all stakeholders uh, as to how we're teaching our young people how to drive, not just the young people, but mostly young people, uh, how to drive. And in comparison to other European countries and other international countries, um, our system of teaching people how to drive is very lacking in the way that we do it uh, compared to international standards. And we would like to have a proper conversation um, including the Minister for Transport, Mr. Raymond Ryan, and Jack Chambers, and uh, the CEO of RSA, uh, Sam Wade. And we want a proper, uh, meaningful conversation as to how we teach our, uh, people how to
6: drive. All right. Uh, I've often thought uh, that you learn how to pass your driving test, uh, you get your license, and then you learn how to drive. Uh, do you think there's any merit in that?
1: Well, there is some merit in that because we're always learning, even myself, as I drive every day, and I've been driving for a long time and teaching for a long time, I've always considered myself to be learning. But, you know, we need more time to teach our young people how to drive. Um, you know, if we compare it to some other countries, um, you know, Poland, for example, they, they require 30 hours obligatory uh, driving hours, Portugal, 32 hours, Romania, 30 hours. You know, Victoria in Australia, 120 hours, and we are at the lowest rate of 12 hours. And uh, this is something that was introduced in 2011 uh, by the Road Safety Authority, and has never been improved. It was a good start. You know, it was something mm-hmm. that we hadn't got before. But it's time now to have a proper conversation and move these things on and get them up to proper international standards.
6: I'm surprised you mentioned Poland. Uh, I've heard uh, people talk about hazardous driving in Poland.
1: Yes, well, you know, every country uh, does hazardous driving, but, you know, um, if we compare our pass rates, even on international levels, um, they're, they're quite low and they never improve. For example, in 2006, uh, we had 56% people passing. 2011, 56%, no improvement. And the latest released figures in 2022, would you believe were down to 53%? Right. So in the last uh, 60 and 70 years, uh, the pass rates are actually going down. Mm. When you get 56 well, 53%, actually, at last year, uh, failing. What that means is that everybody that sits their test. Uh, one and two of those people have to come back at least a second time mm. and whilst they're waiting for their second test or their third test which can be the case uh, they're out there driving and quite often they're out there driving unaccompanied you know because they can't get test date mm. um, and but, so that but that
6: is a, that, that that is illegal a, a now to drive unaccompanied you can have the car
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
6: Taking off you, can't you?
1: It is. It is illegal, mm. but there's lots of illegal stuff going on on our roads, you know. Mm. It was just released recently, uh, some figures, that 90% of banned drivers don't give up their license. Hmm and an astounding figure that came out in the last month was uh, um 8% of all our drivers are uninsured. So that means that when you're driving down the road one in 12 drivers that pass by you is actually uninsured. Um and that's three times the the amount of the UK, and four times of the EU average. Yeah. So you know we're, we're well behind on all aspects uh, with huge queues for NCTs huge cues for our young people to sit their driving tests so we need to sit down and have serious conversations and an evaluation of where we actually are in our learning to drive process
6: okay Uh, is the driving test fit for purpose itself does it test people's ability to drive it certainly doesn't under all circumstances it doesn't test people Uh, driving on the motorway. It doesn't test people driving at night. It doesn't test people driving uh, in uh, uh, wintry conditions, uh, on ice or uh, frosty conditions.
1: Yes, that's very true. These are other things that we have to improve on. You know, at the moment, uh, driving instructors, ADIs, you know, we have 12 hours um, to teach people how to drive. The public need to understand a little bit more with the help of the Road Safety Authority letting people know that um, 12 hours is just a start. You know, you need much more than that. And unfortunately, the price of insurance for young drivers is very difficult, you know. Um, And trying to find times with busy mams and dads as well to get out and practice. All this coming together is making our roads unsafe and uh, deaths on our roads and serious injuries on our roads are on the increase. And this is, this, these are the kind of things that have to be confronted and have to be sorted out.
6: Okay. Uh, you're also talking about the age that people drive at.
1: Um, in what way, Michael? Sorry.
6: Uh, that uh, you should be accompanied at the age of 17 uh, and uh, that uh, you must be at least 18 uh, if uh, you're going to drive unaccompanied, I thought.
1: Yes. Well, that, that is something that's uh, proposed as well. Um and that's a a European directive I believe at the moment that's going to come into come into play in Ireland in the future um you know part of the problem with the sponsorship uh you know the mom or the dad that's going out with their with their son or their daughter is these people, although they have all the best intentions, you know some of them might have mightn't have done many lessons themselves they might have been passed their test in the eighties or the nineties, you know. And and in those days, they weren't obliged to do uh, driving lessons. So all of a sudden, they find themselves in a the car without dual controls, um, having to teach their son and their daughter uh, how to drive in between their driving lessons. So this is another system that has to be looked at. You know, the logging of sponsor hours, the proper person uh, being selected to teach. Uh, it doesn't have to be mom or dad. You know, it can be brother and sister. But, you know, these are things we need to look at properly and find the right people and the people that are serious about being the sponsor for this young person on the road.
6: Okay, Um, Just that clear, uh, do you think it's all right uh, to practice uh, with uh, ma'am or dad or brother or sister, or would you prefer it that learner drivers uh, would be uh, accompanied by a qualified driving instructor?
1: Well, we believe as driving instructors that um, we need much more time with our, with our learner drivers before the mom or the dad or the brother and sister comes in to help. Mm. You know, the system that we have at the moment that uh, has been introduced by the RSA in 2011 basically tells us that after the first lesson with a driving instructor that they should go off and drive with their sponsor for three hours. And that, in their opinion, that's just madness. You know, because if you teach somebody for an hour, the first time ever in a car and then, you know, I do get some of my customers saying, will I go and practice with my mom and dad? My answer is always no, no, not yet. Um, I'll tell you when, mm. you know, be, because everybody is different. You know, some people can pick it up quite quickly, but even if they're really good, they're not picking it up after an hour lesson or a two hour lesson, you know, mm. you need much more time with a qualified driving instructor. Before any family member comes in to help
6: them, and they may teach you, but they may teach you their bad habits. I suppose
1: that's very true because I often um, come across uh, learners that I've been teaching them for a while, and then maybe I haven't seen them, and they come back to me, and they've been driving with their mom or their dad, and now all of a sudden I feel as if I'm teaching their mom and dad by proxy how to teach, you know, because (laughs) they're because because so I'm nearly teaching their son or their daughter how to explain to their mom and dad not to be telling them to do that, you know. Mm. So it causes its own problems, yeah, and it causes confusion.
6: Mm, I'm sure it does. Uh, So, um, when you talk about uh, this week as a a safety week uh, for the learners and uh, their sponsors, uh, this is uh, the message that you're trying to get across, uh, and... Uh, uh, take it that's uh, in lieu of any change to the regulations uh, for the 12 hours that are necessary to sit a, a test or I- indeed uh, what happens after you pass your test and become a novice driver
1: Yes well the reason why we're, we're running this road safety week is uh, coming up to the 4th of April is the 12th anniversary of the introduction of the EDT system and what we're what we're trying to do is get a A conversation not only between driving instructors, but between driving instructors and their their students and their students' uh, sponsor. And we would invite um, the Minister for Transport and uh, Sam Wade, the CEO of the RSA, to get involved in this conversation. Um, There's no point in just telling us how it's going to be done. They need to listen and ask questions of the people that it affects and then find solutions and ways to do it properly so we we don't believe that it should be just between driving instructors we believe it should be between driving instructors and all stakeholders everybody that's on the road
7: Um,
1: so we would be uh, running a live webinar on the 4th of april on the anniversary of the edt introduction and this is something that we're going to be doing um every year from from here on in
6: all right now can people access that
1: um, well, uh, we will be putting up information with all our um, on our, all our platforms in the next few days uh, as to how they uh, can access that.
6: Okay, uh, just a couple of comments. Eric in Dundalk says uh, the reason people drive without insurance is because it's too expensive. Uh, they should have a system like the one they have in New Zealand. I'm sure he's right. Everybody's uh, fed up to the gills with the cost of uh, insurance, but it really is criminal not to, or d- not to have insurance uh, if you're going to drive. Uh, what do you make of his comment, uh, Dominic?
1: Well, well, I can only agree with him. That you know, when we look at the figures, that eight percent, I was astounded by those figures. That eight percent of people that are driving are uninsured, and um, and I'm not condoning. It's definitely not condoning. it, But you can see why that is happening because the price of insurance for a young person, you know, a 17-year-old, a 18-year-old looking to get on the road um, and can cost thousands for their mom and dad and they're already stretched with everything else that's going on in in in, in the country and the world at the moment, you know.
6: Okay. So, so, uh,
1: so the insurance companies also have to uh, step up to the plate and and introduce a proper system for young drivers mm-hmm. and understand that this could be their customer for the rest of their lives.
6: All right. here, here Sorry, go ahead.
1: Them
6: well, at the start. well, here, here here's a, a, an idea for the insurance companies from Eamon. He says there should be dozens of car simulators in every town in uh, the country. People are paying so much for tax and insurance and uh, it should be funded by the insurance companies and by the government because driving is too dangerous uh, the way things are with the current driving test. Seems like a, a good idea, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, well, there has been uh, cases of simulators over the years. I've come across them myself. But it, it's it's never been a properly regulated system. You know, even our theory test is basically, there's your book. You know, learn off uh, driver theory and do your test, you know. And in yeah. another country, a lot of that work is done in the classroom. And, you know, we could introduce it into transition year in our secondary schools. There's all different ways that we can improve uh, to safety on our roads but unfortunately um, the Department of Transport the RSA we seem to be caught in a rut where they've introduced something 12 years ago and that's it nothing, nothing is changing you okay. know, uh, and, and, and the world is changing and, and the habits of people is changing so we need to move with, with those changes.
6: All right, Dominic, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme today. Dominic Brady is an advanced driving instructor and chairperson of uh, the Unite ADI Union branch. And so thanks as well to Eamon and Eric for the texts during that. Remember, if you want to make comment, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861 800 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. The DUP is set to say no when MPs in Westminster vote on the Stormont Break on Wednesday. The Stormont Break is part of the Windsor Framework, which has replaced the Northern Ireland Protocol. Let's uh, speak uh, to Peter McVerry, who's a journalist with our sister station U105 in Belfast. A very good morning to you, Peter, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme today. Maybe you should explain the Stormont Break to us because i think the big question here is if you say no to the storm and break are you saying no to the windsor framework
9: yeah, on paper you're not but the storm and break is being portrayed as the the most advantageous bit of it for the politicians in northern Ireland, and particularly for the dup because it gives them something that they were after which is the ability to, to flag a problem in the eu law and for an eu law not to automatically apply in Northern Ireland, I'll not go as far as saying it's a veto, Michael, because that's what they're looking at in the legal text to see what's there. But it does give, if you can get 30 Assembly members from more than one party uh, who have an issue with it, then they can table that issue. And it's then referred to Westminster and the UK government will look at it and pick it up. Uh, the the to and fro over the last while has been what exactly that means. Is it a veto? Was it up to the UK? Is it up to the EU? And the DUP understand that they don't have enough clarity in it and there's still too much regular room for them and it's not something that, while well, they accept as a step forward, mm. um, it hasn't gone far enough for them.
6: And that's 30 members of the Assembly. Uh, does that mean it could be 29 members of the DUP and one other from any other party?
9: Yes, it does. And, and, and the way in which it's written as well, they've, they've, they've tried to ensure... You can't, for example, just jump ship overnight from one party to another in order to satisfy the mechanisms of this, because they're helping, you know, there are things there like the Petition of Concern that previously existed at Stormont that was written in some of the agreements for a positive reason, and then some parties would believe it had been used in the past for a negative reason. So they are they are looking at how exactly this is framed and phrased, but, you know, at this stage... We're not even there, Michael. It's likely that we will pass tomorrow. Anyway, because they don't need the DUP support, But the Tories do have Labour, have previously said, that they'll back whatever it takes to get this through. Um, And the Tories have a majority, I think, of 69. But there will be some members in that group, the the ERG, the more right-wing of the Tories, who will look at this and who might vote in line with the DUP and the Tories won't want to have, you know, to be relying on Labour votes to get it through, even though that can happen.
6: OK, and that support of uh, the Labour Party will quite possibly give uh, the British government the wherewithal to see this through and to strike this deal once and for all with uh, the European Union. Uh, but that doesn't do anything to restore the stormant institutions.
9: No, it doesn't. And when you say once and for all, the DUP are very adamant that this, this isn't once and for all. Uh, their view is that um, they were told that the Northern Ireland Protocol was in there and that was it and there was no way in which it could be renegotiated, no way it could be looked at. Their belief is that because they took, first of all, the First Minister out and then refused to go back into the Assembly after the election, the DUP view is that the only way we've arrived at this point this week uh, is because of their decision and the leverage that they have. So uh, they're saying, actually, we don't accept that's as far as anybody can go. And the urging is that Rishi Shunek and the UK government go back to seek for A, more clarity and B, more concessions. And until that point, the DUP are saying they won't go back into, into Stormont.
6: Okay. Am I right in thinking that the DUP is happy or satisfied uh, with what this so-called Stormont break would do in terms of future EU regulation in that it would give them the opportunity to veto it uh, with the support of one other. Uh, but they're concerned about existing EU legislation.
9: Uh, two strong to it Michael, they are definitely concerned about existing EU legislation and not being able to to, to change it. And one of the issues going forward is that even if they do go back into the Assembly and they do use the straw and brick there's a bit of a lack of clarity depending on who you listen to about whether or not it is a veto for politicians and all that whether the veto rests with Westminster, whether the veto rests with the EU. There have been some comments that were made by Mara Saskiewicz, the, the EUs, lead negotiator negotiated with some of the people in Brussels who've said actually that actually that the veto will only be used in the most exceptional circumstances and that there are very specific ways in which it needs to be invoked. And that has raised the suspicions, if you like, of the of the DUP. So they're, they're not clear on that, which is why they wanted to see yesterday's legislation that was being put in place through what's called the Statue of the Instrument in Westminster. But ironically, the DUP had met at breakfast yesterday morning and were announcing at lunchtime yesterday they were going to vote no, even before that legislation had been tabled. So they hadn't seen what the legislation said before they said no.
2: OK,
6: right. Uh, and uh, if they've a, a problem with existing legislation or their right to veto it, uh, as uh, the case may be, have they said what legislation they have a problem with?
9: Uh, no, they, 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 they haven't identified what the EU legislation is. They've just, they, their view is that there's a democratic deficit mm. here, and they believe that they're, that they're, being, they're being left out and that uh, Northern Ireland is the only part of the United Kingdom jurisdictionally which would be bound by past and future EU laws because mm. the rest of the UK has left Europe. But again, that's the, that's the circle that's hard to square, Michael, because mm. the reality is Northern Ireland is the only part of the UK which has a border with, um, with on, on its landmass with the EU. So there's going to have to be something different about Belfast than there is about Boulder and Birmingham or Bradford.
6: Okay. Well, uh, it's a point of principle, I suppose, or a question of identity. Uh, and it's that question of uh, identity that is playing out well with DUP supporters. Uh, is it possible that this is a case of uh, the DUP trying to drag this out to the local elections in May?
9: Yes, that's a strong chance that there's that. And it's, uh, the reality is that tomorrow voting against it with our with MPs, it's just a protest vote because it makes no real difference and no real no real change to it. Uh, they do have, as you, as you remember, an eight-person panel, including former leaders and first ministers, Peter Robinson and Arlene Foster, that they've asked to report back by the end of this month and to make a recommendation. And they've asked that, that group to consult with you know uh, businesses and civic society, for example, uh, but the reality is you would expect that group not to be very different and it's thinking to the MPs who have come back uh, in terms of where they're at. It does feel that if the DUP are adopting a negotiating position and trying to see if there's anything more they can get out of it also before they decide what the next step is. But taking a next step of going back into Stormont before the local elections might lose them some votes. So what's most likely is that you might going forward, if we can reach any agreement at all, see something with the choreographed timetable um, with with staged posts. If you like make Michael Raw and anybody sound on a Friday and come back in on Monday?
6: Okay. Peter, good to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time to speak to us and for joining us on the show today. Peter McVerry, journalist with our sister station U105 in Belfast. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. A lot of people in touch uh, about learner drivers. Mary saying, it's all well and good for your guest to be saying that learner drivers need more time with instructors before they're uh, allowed to to drive with family members. But driving lessons are expensive. and They're not something that people can do do indefinitely. More needs to be done to speed up waiting times for the tests because the backlog is huge and it's causing huge frustration for people who are waiting on a test. A WhatsApp message from Rose who says, I think if a driving instructor is happy that a person is capable of controlling the car whether they've had four lessons or 24 lessons, uh, they should get a provisional license if uh, they are accident free after two years then they should get their full licence. It's so expensive. Uh, Another message that comes uh, on WhatsApp about this from somebody who says, we need good roads to begin with, not stock car tracks, unless you're on the M50. That's all that we have. In other words, if you're not on the motorways, they're stock car tracks. Uh, John says, something that they should be teaching new drivers is manners on the road. Thanks uh, for sharing that with us, John. And Dave has been in touch with us about the eviction ban. He says pressure is mounting on the government to reverse its decision on the ban. He says it's about time they listen to what people are saying. Where do they expect people facing eviction to go to once they leave their current homes? There are no houses available to rent, uh, at least not at a, a reasonable rate, and people simply can't afford to get on the property ladder. Thank you, Dave. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. 041 983 if you want to ring us, text or WhatsApp, 086 1800 658, email michael at lmfm.ie.
2: Michael Reed, Reed on,
6: on LMFM. It looks like it's going to be a remarkable day for the former President of uh, the United States Donald Trump. An historic day, in fact, in American politics. Larry Donnelly, Law Lecturer with NUY, Galway and Political Annual Analyst with the Journal.ie joins us now. Larry, what's going to happen to Mr. Trump? He
10: will be charged by the Manhattan District Attorney uh, Alvin Bragg. Uh, And this is in relation to a state charge uh, of false bookkeeping, and that will be linked to uh, a federal charge uh, of an improper campaign donation to his then attorney, Michael Cohen. Um, This results from a hush payment made to the porn star uh, Stormy Daniels of one hundred and thirty thousand dollars in connection with uh, an alleged affair that the former president had uh, with her. Uh, So, uh, look, you know, it's likely that, you know, we'll see charges filed today. How this will unfold then in terms of Trump being arrested, uh, all of that is unknown. It is likely, however, in my opinion, um, that it will be done remotely and through some sort of negotiation with Trump's legal team.
6: Okay, so it's related to the uh, affair uh, that he had with uh, this woman, uh, but it's not because he gave her this money.
10: Well, it's because he it's because Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's former lawyer, paid her a hundred and thirty thousand dollars then Cohen was reimbursed uh, a sum greater than that uh, by trump and this was uh, done as a retainer. It was a legal fee uh, and this is allegedly uh, constitutes an imp- improper campaign donation because uh, the, the the money was paid to make. Uh, Stormy Daniels effectively go away as Trump sought the presidency. Now, Mm. there is a complexity here, first of all, with the interplay between state and federal law. uh, But secondly, what Trump's team is likely to argue is that this money would have been paid irrespective of whether Donald Trump was seeking the presidency or not. And indeed, they will refer back to 2011, uh, when at first it was mooted that Stormy Daniels might be paid a fee to stop talking about her story and not to sell it on. So there's room here for Trump to deploy his classic legal strategy, which is delay, 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 Uh, although that is more difficult to do in this criminal context than it is in the civil context.
6: Okay, Uh, Michael Cohen has admitted to paying uh, this $130,000 to Stormy Daniels.
10: Yeah, he has. He, He admitted doing so. He admitted to a campaign finance violation. He served some time. Uh, in prison. He's also testified uh, before the grand jury that the Manhattan district attorney uh, impaneled here. So he's been very much an active player uh, in all of this. And again, his former boss, his former close confidant who he has really turned against.
6: Right, and I suppose then the question is, uh, where did he get the money? Uh, Did he, uh, as Donald Trump uh, would claim, uh, take it upon himself uh, to pay this money to Stormy Daniels, or did Donald Trump give uh, the money to Michael Cohen and therein may lay the problem for Mr. Trump? Uh, If uh, that transpires to be the case, then he's broken the rules, is it?
10: Well, no, I mean, the, the reality is Cohen paid it out of his own personal funds, but the idea is that he was directed to do so by Donald Trump and then he was reimbursed, but the idea is that this was uh, almost a fraudulent reimbursement. The fact that, he, because Trump is alleging that this was uh, a payment for legal services that Michael Cohen rendered, when in fact he was simply repaying him the money uh, that Michael Cohen had given to uh, to Stormy Daniels. Now, of course, uh, that's the allegation. Trump denies uh, all of this. Uh, again, we'll see how that plays out.
6: All right. Uh, well, this is part of the vendetta uh, against uh, Donald Trump, he, he would claim. And uh, he's calling his uh, supporters uh, to object in the strongest popular, pop, uh, possible terms.
10: Yeah, I mean, Trump is casting this as, uh, look, this district attorney is politically motivated. Uh, he's even a racist. Alvin Bragg, Alvin Bragg happens to be a black man. Uh, he's you know, a racist, and he's called upon his followers to uh, protest. He's Notably, he hasn't said to protest peacefully. He's said to protest, and he's cast this uh, in the most dire terms possible. Uh, also, we're hearing rumors that the uh, Trump people are saying that the Trump supporters across the country uh, should re- withdraw their money from Uh, the banks in light of the ongoing banking crisis in the United States, that Mm. this might have some impact. Now, how far uh, any of this stuff is going to go, uh, I'm not sure, because I'm just not so sure that Donald Trump's message or messaging has the same potency or resonance that it certainly would have when he was still in the White House, and we saw what had happened unfold uh, on January six. Okay, uh, am
6: I right in understanding what you're saying? Donald Trump is claiming that he's being targeted on racial grounds uh, because he's white.
10: Yeah, among one of the many lines he has repeated over and over again uh, that Alvin Bragg is a racist and that he is out to get him. Now, I will say, not by way of defending Donald Trump, uh, but I do think one of the systemic flaws in the United States. Is that we elect uh, prosecutors, and there is no question, uh, regardless of how one feels about Donald Trump, there is no question that political motivations, uh, you know, are, are involved in Alvin Bragg's calculations. This will be uh, very, very popular with a lot, of, a big number uh, of Democrat leaning supporters in his district, and also Democrat leaning fundraisers. Uh, in his district. So systemically, there, uh, regardless of how we might feel about Donald Trump, I do believe that there is an issue in the United States with how we select our prosecutors.
6: Okay, he may not have uh, the same sway with people that he once had, but uh, I think the authorities are preparing for trouble, aren't they?
10: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think every New York policeman policeman and policewoman has been uh, asked to be ready to go if there is a situation that arises. Uh, Again, Trump has called for protests. The extent to which this will happen, I'm not so sure. But all we need to think about, Michael, is it only takes a small number of people, given the fact that uh, in the United States you can access weaponry and all sorts of other things. It would only cause a very small number of people at a protest to cause something very, very dramatic and, and tragic. Uh, so I think all appropriate caution uh, is being taken. And again, I think it's quite shameful uh, that Trump hasn't insisted uh, on peaceful uh, protest here. The other thing just to make mm. quick note of is uh, the way his rivals for the Republican presidential nomination uh, are casting this. Most of them are saying that it is a political overreach in this instance, but it's very interesting to see that Ron DeSantis, his chief rival for the nomination, uh, has said, yes, it's a political overreach, but it is kind of depressing uh, that a former president of the United States could somehow manage to get himself Uh, into this sort of situation uh, with a porn star. And I think that's very targeted uh, by Ron DeSantis, in particular uh, at evangelical voters uh, in places like Iowa, where the Republican contest Mm. will uh, kick off in in earnest early next
6: year. Yeah, I'm sure there's uh, a lot of Republicans uh, who feel that they could do with this like a hole in the head.
10: Yeah, absolutely. The new new polling data shows that uh, 44% uh, of Republicans say that if Trump is charged, which again, in all likelihood, it will happen today or sometime this week, that he should withdraw from the Republican uh, presidential primary. Now, you know, there is another school of thought that says this is going to fire up Trump's base. It's actually going to work for him. He can cast himself as a martyr. I'm not so sure about that. I think, Michael, that given this, and this is just one of, you know, several, Uh, swirling legal investigations around the former president that an awful lot of Republicans, even those who like him, are going to say, yeah, if we had our druthers, we'd have Donald Trump back in the White House. But because of all this, it's unlikely that he can get it over the line in the general election, and they might start searching for uh, an alternative horse uh, to put their money on. And in my view, that's likely to be Ron DeSantis.
6: All right. Uh, and it's actually one of four potential criminal investigations that Mr. Trump faces.
10: Yeah, I mean, there's numerous things. I mean, there's the uh, in, in Georgia, where we know he was asking the Secretary of State to go find votes for him, uh, in New York, uh, with respect to uh, the, the valuation of real estate, with respect to allegations of sexual assault that have been made. Uh, against him, and also uh, in connection with what happened on January 6th at the federal level. That's still ongoing. Uh, and lastly, don't forget uh, Mar-a-Lago and the, uh, the the classified documents that he retained improperly. There are cl- clouds literally everywhere uh, following Donald Trump around, uh, and that's what makes me wonder, despite his resilience in the polls, and it should be mm. said, he has been resilient, and he does enjoy the support around a third of Republicans who would walk off the plank with him it does mean to me or suggest to me uh, that this is you know again he's in trouble here uh, and I think it's going to be an exceedingly uphill climb for him to overcome all of this uh, and make it all the way back to uh, becoming the Republican presidential nominee.
6: If um, he was to be prosecuted would it be possible uh, to run for the presidency?
10: Yes, I mean, there is no prohibition uh, on uh, somebody from running for president of the United States. Indeed, uh, there was a socialist candidate who ran for president of the United States uh, in the last century and received uh, a million votes while sitting uh, in a jail cell. So uh, there is no absolute prohibition. Trump maintains that he will go on uh, no matter what happens. And as I said previously, uh, on all of these things, uh, Trump is going to keep delaying, 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 and pushing this off uh, as long as possible. So I don't see this as a, a legal impediment to him pursuing uh, the, the, the the presidency. But uh, I think the political hurdles that this uh, all of this uh, throwing up continue to get higher and higher every day.
6: Okay. Uh, and is it good news for the Democrats?
10: That's hard to know, Michael. That's a very interesting question. I mean, I think Democrats are wary of... Uh, of saying look we can beat Trump i think after after they saw what happened in 2016 and after they saw what he did when he was president i think it strikes fear into their hearts that having been said and looking into in, internally at the democratic party but the reality is there are you know joe biden has done a good job by any objective standard there are however a, a lot of americans who aren't feeling the benefits that he you know is is credited with and who have deep concerns about his age. Uh, In the analysis of a lot of people, including mine, the one candidate who Joe Biden could certainly be uh, is Donald Trump. Uh, I think that things could get more complicated for an 80-year-old Joe Biden, again, with lots of concerns about his age, if the the Republicans were instead to go for somebody like Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, uh, who bring the vigor of youth, uh, if nothing else, to the campaign trail, and who might appeal to that swathe of people who aren't necessarily in either camp. So in short, uh, it's complicated.
6: Well, love or hate Donald Trump, he certainly makes the world interesting for the right reasons or the wrong reasons we leave up to other people to decide. But Larry, thank you indeed, as always, for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Larry Donnelly, law lecturer with NUI Galway, uh, political analyst with the journal.ie. We'd James Indrada in touch with us uh, during that interview asking if Larry indicated that black people can't be racist. Uh, No, he didn't. I I think I was a little bit amazed at the idea that Donald Trump was uh, claiming that he was being racially targeted because he was white. Uh, I don't think Larry Donnelly said anything of the sort. He just said that that was what Donald Trump is claiming. Uh, But uh, James says, I've never heard such a one sided interview uh, and that it's an alleged affair. An alleged affair. All right, James, uh, that cost 130,000 euro to stay quite uh, and uh, somebody else asking uh, about Biden uh, getting uh, money from China. <laughs> Not sure what that's about, but thanks uh, for asking us. Uh, we'd uh, somebody else uh, who said uh, just on the issue of race uh, that Donald Trump isn't white. Uh, he's a strange shade of orange. Thanks, uh, John Conlon. We take that tongue in cheek. Uh, going back to driving, uh, we'd a text uh, from a WhatsApp message from somebody who says, Michael, just listening to your Guest on Learner Drivers. I've three lads who've all passed their tests and they had to do the 12 lessons. I, I think it should be brought into the school curriculum as a learning experience. Even if it was only one class a week, it would create a sense of accomplishment for students and teach them how to drive safely and with respect for other road users. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing your thoughts with us today.
2: Michael, Michael Reed on
6: LMFM. Right now, as is usual, around this time on Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Guarded Crime Desk. As usual, there's a, a number of incidents which Guarded are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations. Sergeant Mark Horan of Laytown Garda Station joins us for this week's report and thank you, Sergeant, for doing so. We're going to begin with some really disturbing stories of animal cruelty. The first of these dates back almost two weeks now.
5: Yeah, that's correct, Michael. Yeah, very uh, disturbing incidents there that happened. The first one was reported to, to Leytown Garda Station on the 8th of March there where a dog was found in very suspicious circumstances, dead by the by the ISPCA in 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 the Laytown area. So anybody who may have any information, who might have heard something that of note or knows what happened, we, we wouldn't mind if they would get in contact with us at Ashburn or Laytown garage Station. We have a number there for Ashburn is oh one eight one zero six zero zero. And following on from that, we had another similar incident in the Drada area, uh, not too long after, where uh, a dog was. Uh, tied up and killed this was recorded it was shared openly on social media and we're advising the public that if they get this sent to them by whoever that we advise not to open or, or see it because it is very t- t- dis- disturbing and anybody in the Drada area or anyone f- for that matter in any location that has information in relation to that if they wouldn't mind giving draw a ring also please
6: yeah, please do. It's heartbreaking to think that anybody could be that cruel, really dreadful stuff yeah, altogether. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we're going to Ashburn now for uh, the next report. Uh, this happened Friday week ago uh, and uh, a woman was robbed fairly violently, it would seem, sitting in her car.
5: Yeah, correct. We have two incidents there in the Ashburn area there. Uh, the first one was reported on that the, the Tenth of March, where a female returned from shopping in in, in Ashburn to her home address, and um, while sitting in her car, she observed a lone male come from behind her vehicle and open the passenger door. This male then took her shopping bag and tried to grab her handbag. The female also grabbed her handbag and made, and the male subsequently pulled the female and the bag across the passenger seat and onto the ground. The female's husband, who was in the area, came to assist, and the fled male, the male led the scene. He was unsuccessful in taking the bag, and investigations in, 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 in that crime are ongoing. And, and on a similar note, on the 19th of March, also in the Ashburn area, another female had returned home from shopping, and uh, had found that the house had been broken into, unbeknownst to herself that the uh, perpetrator was still in the area, and uh, a male approached her, grabbed her handbag and uh, that she had on her. Uh, another struggle ensued, the straps of the handbag broke, and the male fled this time in, in possession of the handbag. Dreadful, two very, yeah. Two very disturbing instances for the for the for the lone females in both situations. So, anybody in Ashworn or anywhere, that matter, has any information relation to that? or those crimes, if you can going ring it in Ashburn car station again on that same number please Michael.
6: Uh, and similar uh, I think uh, because uh, the next report is of a woman who was assaulted and robbed on Wednesday of last week, this was in Dundalk
5: Yeah, in, in the Dundalk area Michael, of the Ice Hill Park area of the town uh, a female was aware of two of two males who were walking behind her she observed that they were wearing black clothing and as she turned to get out of the way and let them move on, one of the males hit her across the mouth, knocking her to the ground. Both males then grabbed her handbag, pulled it from her, and they uh, they fled the scene on foot. Uh, in, in in the process of the of the of the robbery, they took her out her purse, left, left the handbag there on the ground, and and as a, as a result of the, of the of the robbery this lady suffered um injuries to her face and investigation in in that crime is uh, is ongoing. So if anybody in, in the, the dock area is aware of it, heard anything that I think the guards might 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 uh want to know, please contact down dark Garrison Station. And again, another indication of a very shocking crime locally there up in Dundark.
6: Okay, we're going to conclude, Sergeant, with uh, an appeal for information uh, as to the whereabouts of uh, three very young teenagers uh, who you're obviously concerned about.
5: Yes, yeah, that's right, Michael. Uh, on the 19th of March, we see the report at Ashburn Garage Station of two young ladies, uh, one, 14 years, by the name of Alicia McIndoran, and also a 13 year old female by the, by the name of Michelle uh, uh, FAU. Um, if anybody is in contact with those females either via text, uh, on the phone or through social media we, 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 we would appreciate that you would contact the parents if you know who they are and if not, contact us from station they're down since the 19th of March, they're very young and we, we have very strong concerns for their safety and on top of that we have a young lady who is a, uh, a Somalian national she only, she's only in Ireland a few weeks, she's on her own She's been looked after by the state currently. She left the property in the Southgate area of Drada eh, on the 20th of March. She's only 14 years of age. We have uh, no indication currently of her whereabouts. And if anybody hears, hears anything in relation to her, may come across her in any shape or form, uh, please contact Ashburn, Laytown or Drada Garrison stations who, who can assist in trying to locate that female.
6: Okay, thank you indeed, Sergeant Mark Doran of Laytown Garda Station. We will return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's program. Let me give you some more of uh, the comments that have been coming to us. Jerry in Wilkinson says uh, the roads are good enough for boy racers and others on quad bikes and scramblers. Would the Garda not do something about them instead of sitting in Garda stations uh, and not answering phones? Uh, Thanks uh, for that. Uh, Barney in Knockbridge says, Michael, when drivers buy a BMW or uh, a Mercedes, uh, they should be told where the indicators are. thanks, Bernie. That's that big stick uh, that makes that tick-tock noise that drives uh, some motorists mad. Uh, I think that's why they don't use them. Uh, Mick, in touch uh, about road safety as well, he says there's a a lot of qualified guard drivers out there. Would they voluntarily invite young learner drivers into local halls or centres to give lectures on road safety? He thinks it would be very helpful and it would help prepare young drivers for using the roads. Eamon, in touch to say that a judge who was appointed by the Democrats is trying to convict Donald Trump uh, and that should be pointed out also he says uh, this week marks the 20th anniversary of uh, the war in Iraq why are you not mentioning that Michael and uh, the thousands of lives that were lost there that Good point, actually, Amen. Uh, and indeed those weapons of mass destruction that turned out to be a figment of the imagination of uh, the British and the American leaders at the time. Anyway, uh, that's uh, thankfully in the past, or is it, I suppose, is uh, the question. But speaking of uh, the world's problems, let's hear a very stark message about the planet that we're living in now.
4: Dear friends, humanity is on thin ice and that ice is melting fast. As today's report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, details, humans are responsible for virtually all global heating over the last 200 years. The rate of temperature rise in the last half century is the highest in 2,000 years. Concentrations of carbon dioxide are at their highest in at least 2 million years. The climate time bomb is ticking. But today's IPCC report is a how-to guide to defuse the climate time bomb. It is a survival guide for humanity. As it shows, the 1.5 degree limit is achievable, but it will take a quantum leap in climate action. This report is a clarion call to massively fast-track climate efforts by every country and every sector and on every time frame.
6: We're killing the planet. Uh, That's the Secretary-General of uh, the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, speaking on foot of uh, that IPCC report yesterday. That's our programme for today. Maggie Maguire research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.